2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. <laughs> This is the Starship Sova, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 451. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome back, if you didn't listen to any shows last week, we if you remember we had a week off, went down to... The country of Portugal and Sun myself on a glorious sandy beach there with the family and friends for a week. Oh, absolutely gorgeous, man. Oh, fantastic. Lovely time. But we're back in the running there now. And we've got the main fiction, which is Cosmobotica by Tony Pai and Kosti Gugu. Then we have looking back at genre history with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. That is all coming into today's show, I do hope. As I say, you will stick around and enjoy it. So we'll get jump straight in with the main fiction. And like I say, it is Cosmobotica by Tony Pai and Costigugu, Originally published in the Mammoth Book of Diesel Punk*. Tony Pai is a Chinese-Canadian writer in Toronto with a PhD in linguistics. He is the winner of the 2015 Aurora Award for Best English Poem Song, a multiple past finalist in the category of Best English Short Fiction and the 2009 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. His work appears in anthologies and magazines including Clark's World, Fantasy Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies and The Time Traveler's Almanac. Kosti Gugu was born in Constana, the 2,600-year-old Greek city on the Black Seashore. And lives in Toronto with his wife on Ontario Lakeshore. Large bodies of water help consti glimpse into the realms that and some Drake and magic. His fiction has appeared in Canada, United States, England, Denmark, Hungary, and Romania. He has sold three books and over fifty stories, for which he has won twenty-four awards. His latest series include anthologies. In the Age of Wonder, the third science fiction mega pack, Tressa Cat 17, The Mammoth Book of Stiesel His novel, Recipe Arium was published in 2016 by White Cat Publications. This story is finally narrated by Paul Cram. I'll give you a little heads up. I had Paul on once before and just, you know what I mean, just captures you into that story. And you forget about the narrator. That's what I love about Paul's kind of narrating. You forget about him because he's so good and you're just in with the story. Paul Cram's young with a touch of gravel voice is a bit newer to the world of audio than it is to other acting forms. Listening fans will hopefully be excited by several up-and-coming audiobook titles in the next year being voiced by him. You can also listen to his audiobooks that are currently available right now through Amazon, iTunes and Audible. And There's a link on there to Audible as well if you want to just have a look what he's done. Cram was most recently seen on the set of the feature film Wilson opposite Woody Harrelson and the indie film Anniversary, shot in Maine, USA by movie director Jim Cole. When not working on a movie set or recording booth, Paul can be found deep-frying chicken wings with his sister in her kitchen or quarrelling about pop culture with his little brother around the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota. And you can find Paul at his website, Paul Cram Actor, or there's again, there's a link on IMDb. Paul's actually said as well, be sure to sign up to Paul's monthly newsletter because you get loads of contents, prizes, movie releases, and of course, audiobook narrations. Details as they become available. Sign up, a link on there as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: Cosmobotica by Kosti Gurgu and Tony Pye. Read by Paul Cram. Earth gleamed like a jewel against black satin on the other side of the porthole, mesmerizing Henry Coanda by way of H-Bot's iconoscopic eyes. If it weren't for the shadow of Nightside and the horrors of white below, he might even see where his mind presenced from, the peaks of the Carpathians, Romania, his home. Awe and pride overwhelmed him. This was the opposite of his catastrophic failure almost three decades ago, at the International Aeronautic Salon in Paris, when he had flown his Coanda 1910, the first jet airplane in history, for a brief, glorious minute before crashing and burning. Tomorrow, on June 1, 1939, he would land a cosmobot on the moon in the name of Romania. This was triumph. Henry felt a tear roll down his face the real face under his connect helmet, Earthside. His chrome-and-steel Cosmobot had been built to copy many things his body could do, but not that. Dialing, a course, correction. Firing engines three and seven. Tiberiu Avician radioed via his Cosmobot unit. Designation, T-Bot. The robot twisted a bakelite knob on the bronze and glass flight board. A grand plaque whose perimeter was etched with stars and comets. The Cosmoship, Lucia Ferul, eased into the new course correction. TB took t metallic hands off the board, while Henry maneuvered Hbot back into the pilot pod beside him. Estimated arrival in moon orbit, 19 hours and 56 seconds. Just imagine, Henry. In a few short years, Solo Corp could have mines on the moon. Perhaps even Mars. Henry grinned. If Tibot had real muscle under those steel cheeks, he'd see Tiberiu's warm smile. Although two decades younger, Tibi was his best friend. He hovered over the flight board, monitoring the glass gauges crowded around in basso Rilievo of two angels trumpeting above a sun disk display. The central glass was lit with emerald stars, marking the latest flight path between the earth and the moon. Overseas says we have exactly two hours till we fall over the horizon. We need to perform a last inspection. Henry turned H-Bot's head to the front portal. There it was. The moon. Its scarred surface, almost all that Henry could see. Look at its splendor, TB. No man or bot has ever come so close to the moon, nor seen it as we see it now. Henry sensed a sudden movement and turned. T-Bot's. Cable snake arms were flailing uncontrollably, its bell-shaped head shuddering and twisting as though from a war of impulses inside. Henry tried to catch T-Bot before he crashed into the flight board, and the two-second radio delay between command and movement was barely enough. Henry constrained T-Bot and pushed it backward as far as possible from the flight board. Overseas, TB's in trouble. I'm coming down. Henry sent through the frequencies. He tethered T-Bot behind the pilot pods using its safety cable, then checked the flight board one more time to ensure they were still on course. Then, Henry plugged H-Bot back into the pod and present down planetside to the launching center. He awakened disoriented inside the navabot sphere, dangling in the sealed chamber in his rubber harness. Once the dizzy spell passed... He pulled off his Cosmobot helmet and looked to his left. Tiberiu spun and flailed uncontrollably in the harness next to him. His friend was having a seizure. Henry unbuckled himself from the harness and dropped gently down onto the cushioned surface below. He tried to grab Tiberiu to steady him, but it was hard to approach without getting kicked or hit by TB's flailing. The door to the sphere opened, and the Cosmo jockeys clad in padded uniforms and cushioned hats, rushed in alongside Dr. Anna Aslan's medical team. The jockeys stepped in on his bath, their gear giving them adequate protection. Sometimes their charges would twist their bodies in the same way as their piloted cosmobots in space and end up tangled dangerously in their harnesses. Experts in their job, the team brought down the distressed cosmonaut without injury to him or themselves. What happened to my son-in-law up there, Henry? An authoritative voice asked from the door. It was Grigor Kuza, the de facto owner of Solomonar Corporation, the mother company behind Cosmos Exploration Enterprises. Grigor was, as usual, a statement of power and controlled image, stalwart in his signature dark brown wool suit. One moment we were looking at the moon. The next, T-Bot became erratic. "'It doesn't make sense,' Henry said, looking desperately to Anna. "'How is he?' "'I gave him a tranquilizer, and he's stable for now,' she replied. "'We'll need to run some tests to find out what caused the seizure.' The medic struggled to carry Tiberiu, a bull of a man, on a stretcher out of the severe. Henry, Anna, and Grigor followed them into Bay One, where wires and pipes clung to the webs against the vaulted ceiling. "'None of this makes sense,' Henry said with a trembling voice. TV's young, strong, and has survived far worse trauma when he was a test pilot. Is he having a reaction to the cerebralizing serum? We can't rule it out, said Anna. You shouldn't have presents back to Earth, Henry. I warned you about breaking the trances. There's a limit to how much serum your brain can handle. Grigor offered Henry a glass of water, and Henry drank deeply from it. He didn't realize how tired and thirsty eight hours of presencing had made him. Grigor was the same age as Henry, but years of political struggle had left its mark on him. Henry admired him for being able to stand up against a multitude of opponents. The board of directors at Salomonar, the ministries, the royal court, the politicians of the Romanian parliament, and especially all the foreign agents who tried to infiltrate, steal, and extort their way into their research secrets. Don't worry, my friend. We will take good care of Tiberiu, Grigor said. You, on the other hand, need to finish the mission. The nations are on the brink of another war, but we can give the world a better ambition. Travel to the stars. This had been Grigor's crusade from the start. Who else but the great Grigor Cusa could have assembled the brightest minds in Romania to change the world? Adoblija, father of psychocybernetics. Vasilescu Carpin, inventor of the limitless Carpin pile battery. Botizatu, mathematical genius. Oberth, maker of the first rockets. Anna Oslin here, whose research in brain aging led to the cerebralizing serum that made presencing possible. Even he, creator of the jet plane. The technological advances developed by the Solomon Corporation had brought new prosperity to Europe. The latest advances in cosmobotics meant that space explorers didn't need to worry about life support or a return trip, allowing mankind to aim for the moon earlier than anyone imagined, even if it was by way of robot proxy. Grigor, this dream of yours? It can work. I know it. We've invested decades in this. If we lose this cosmoship, if we lose Lucia Faru, Grigor's conviction in this plan made Henry believe it too. He had seen this beautiful dream. From up there, this blue and brilliant planet, it could still be saved. "'I simply cannot recommend this,' Anna protested. Two injections a day is already dangerous for a man your age, and we're not even factoring in your breaking your trance.' "'I had tested each and every of my planes myself, Anna, back when people thought heavier than air flight was madness,' answered Henry. "'I'll take the risk. Grigor, you take good care of my boy.' He's my boy too, Henry. Henry's team of Cosmo jockeys strapped him back, fit his helmet on, and prepped him for the cerebralizing injection. Overseas, tell your team I need them to recalculate the path as soon as possible. I am alone now on the ship, and we have little time before falling over the horizon. Understood, came Marcella Avician's quivering voice over the intercom. After what happened to her husband... Henry wouldn't fault Marcella if she asked to be by TB's side instead of doing her job. Yet she soldiered on, with only her voice betraying her anxiety. Our team is verifying the calculations as we speak. I'm sure that by the time your presence back into HBOT, we'll have everything we need for the next twelve hours. Thank you, Marcella. For her sake. Henry pretended that everything was all right. But the truth was, he wasn't sure of anything anymore. Good luck, Henry. Henry presenced back inside h and synchronized with its vision. It was still looking out the front portal. He tried to move to check the flight board, but couldn't. Something was wrong with him now. Could a seizure be next? What could trigger that? No, he was restrained. h arms and legs were bolted to the pilot pod. He turned his head. Tiberius robot, T-Bot, was back in its pod, and was piloting the Cosmoship. What's going on? T-Bot was doing every gesture twice, as if to make sure things were done right. It also looked intently to the very place it was operating for a couple of seconds before doing the gesture, then another couple of seconds afterward. This was definitely not t controlling the bot, but someone not trained for the two-second leg between the bot pilot's mental command to the moment the bot executed the instructions. And the two-second leg before the bot pilot received visual confirmation that the bot performed the action. The ship was being turned away from the moon. Henry looked around for a way to free H-Bot, but the cabin was small and almost bare, save for the flight board and their pods. "'Overseas! Overseas! This is an emergency! t bots reprogramming the Lucia Ferruo's path. "'I don't know how or why!' "'Static.' "'Henry repeated the emergency call. "'Again. "'Just static. "'Sabotage? "'It was likely a matter of time "'before the saboteur would scramble "'the bot pilot channel, too, "'and then Henry wouldn't be able "'to present to the ship again. t bot abandoned its navigation adjustments.' And turned towards Hbot. Who are you? What do you want? Henry asked Tbot over the innerbot channel. He heard a click, then over a clear frequency, the voice of Razvan Ilya, his machinist. We didn't expect you back, Koanda. Ilya, what are you doing? Delivering the Cosmoship ship to those who have paid well for it. I am truly sorry, but you are just in the way. Ilya inside T-Bot, stood, and tried to grab H-Bot's head. But, again, Aaliyah's lack of training showed as it pushed its legs to stand, an action that propelled it upwards from its pod. It bumped into the ceiling and floated there for a couple of seconds of time-like. By the time Aaliyah realized what he'd done wrong in zero-gravity environment, it took another two seconds for him to correct the bot's movement. Henry could do nothing to fight back not with its arms and legs locked into the pod. Only a pilot pod was more than just a chair. Whoever thought of mounting a chair on the ship? Tiberiu asked on their first boarding of the Lucia Ferul. Why would robots need to sit? They never get tired. It's not for the bots, but for us. We're used to piloting in a seat, and this will give us the right frame of mind to operate the ship through the bots. And if we happen upon a solar flare... The pod will reset the bot units and recharge them. The pod also has a backup communication system in case something happens. T-Bot finally floated close enough to the floor to magnetize its feet and stick to it. Then he grabbed H-Bot's head and began to pull with all its mechanical strength. Henry shifted his awareness into the pod. If he could presence into his backup bot in the storage hold under the navigation cabin, he'd be free of this incapacitated unit. Why couldn't he remember the frequency? He'd trained for fast transfer, but those times he did, no one was trying to rip H-Bot's head from its socket. Henry could see through H-Bot's eyes as its head came loose, with only a fragile cable still tethering the floaty cranial unit to its body. The rogue-bot needed two seconds to see the results of his efforts. It had to be now. Henry focused and coded in the frequency, praying that it was right. Henry surged through the connection and 2 seconds later, he stirred in the darkness of the storage hold and flexed the mechanized fingers of his backup robot. He slid the battery button to full function, tapping into Bot 2's carbon pile. Henry gave a sigh of relief. He still had a working bot on Lucia Farul. He hadn't lost the ship yet. And if he were to keep it that way, there were things that needed to be done planet side first. Returning to the Navibot sphere, Henry opened his eyes. His helmet was dripping with sweat, and his eyes felt like they were covered with spiderwebs. He gulped for air and felt the Cosmo jockeys helping him out of the straps. Once safely on the ground, he grabbed the first jockey's arm. I need Kuza here, now! Henry struggled to his feet, pulled off his drenched shirt and threw it out of the sphere. Then he pressed the connect button on the intercom. "'Overseas, we have a problem.' "'Henry, you shouldn't have presents back.' Anna said, Marcella was still in charge of flight control oversight. Her voice was now firm and professional. Could that mean TB was out of danger? Or did it mean she played the Iron Lady she needed to be to hold the mission together for the sake of her husband and her father? "'Lucia Ferruel is under enemy control. I repeat, Lucia Ferrule has been compromised.' Grigor stepped in. His face darkened and confused. What did you say? Elia. Elia? Our machinist present into T-Bot while TB was still in it. That's why TB had the seizure. Henry inhaled and leaned against the sphere's soft wall. Elia's destroyed H-Bot, but I managed to transfer into my backup. For now, our enemy doesn't know I still have a way on board the Lucia Ferrule. Grigor sputtered. Leah betrayed us? Who's he working for? No time to debate that. I need everybody to listen carefully. Overseas, what's the time left on the clock? Henry put on the new shirt that a cosmo jockey brought him and allowed the man to button it up for him. One hour thirty seven minutes to fall over the horizon. Good, enough time if we move fast and precise. What's to be done? asked Grigor. Ilya's experienced but not as practiced as Tibiryu or me. Nobody else should be able to ride T-Bot but TB. The robotic brains mirrored after his mind. Anybody else trying to presence it should be rejected. But Aaliyah managed to presence into T-Bot nonetheless, said Grigor in disbelief. Each bot unit has a subbrain that allows maintenance access. I suspect Ilya had tampered with T-Bots. The subbrain shouldn't be able to control the bot 100% but it can still be used to issue simple commands like moving and pressing buttons, enough to navigate the ship. Grigor was fuming. Unbelievable! Ilya couldn't do this without outside help. He needs someone who can calculate new flight paths, and someone who can back him up here. Marcella cut in over the intercom. To be able to pirate the radio signal, Ilya could only be using the radio tower, or a secondary transmitter built on a very high point nearby. The closest summit to us is 20 kilometers south in the Busegi Mountains, which is too far. We need to send teams to check the facility. Do it, Grigor said. Henry stood. Grigor, I bet his accomplice had destroyed our backup electrical generator, and he's waiting for the right moment to cut off power. They hijack T-Bot exactly two hours before our control window closes, when Romania's position will not allow us to stay in contact with the ship. That means they don't want to destroy the ship, but bring it back into orbit where the foreign power can keep it out of our reach. Marcella interrupted again. They need at least twenty minutes to turn the ship onto a path where we can't relink. After that, they can cut the power and leave us in the darkness while they can retreat with everything they got from us. Grigor swore and punched the cushioned wall. Henry lay a hand gently on Grigor's back. We don't have time for anger, Grigor. I need you. I'm here, Henry. I'm here. Good. Send men to every point where a spy could cut off the power. Not only in our base, but outside, too. On the entire mountain, and especially in Brasov. Tell them to take the spies by surprise so they can't alert anyone. Grigor hurried out of the sphere. Overseas, Henry continued. Get in contact with Dr. Odobleja and ask him if there's a way to stop Elias's control over Tebot. But Dr. Oboja is at the Psycho Cybernetics Conference in Vienna. Our success depends on it, Marcella. Henry turned to one of the jockeys. My training bot in Bay 2. Prepare it. Henry presenced into the training robot, the serum from his previous injection still effective for a short distance connection such as this. He stepped outside of the Spheres facility, inside OBOT, adjusting to the lack of lag, planet side. As a reflex, he paused to breathe in the mountain air, but, of course, Obat could neither transmit back a scent signal or fill Henry's lungs. The launching center perched atop Mount Timpa, above the city of Brasov. In the gloaming, the city was a sea of flickering lights landlocked by the black, woolly mountainscape, and the road down the forested slopes was a slither of electric lamps. No motion in the center's yard. Everybody here was either inside the spheres facility or inside the overseas building. Henry steered Obot around the spheres facility, a huge concrete cupola without windows. The facility was back-to-back with the overseas building, a magnificence combining the graceful vertical art deco lines and the honeycomb pyramidal style inspired by Henry's latest invention, the Betton boys. This type of prefabricated structures was meant to make house construction affordable to a wider array of social classes. He stopped in front of the radio tower. Obot's eyes zoomed into the top of the structure and caught sight of something close to the pinnacle. Ingenious. Ilya had actually built a camouflage nest there right under their noses, a small-scale replica of the Navabot sphere, practically a tin ball, fixed in a wooden frame and tied with wires inside the tower's structure. The saboteurs were more resourceful than he imagined. Obot began climbing the steel tower. Not a difficult prospect for a robot that could magnetize its feet. Although initially the saboteurs' hideout sounded clever, it now seemed dumb to Henry. It was too easy. They needed two hours to make their plan work. How could they stay uninterrupted when they were so easy to spot? Henry heard a clink under Obot's right hand and stopped abruptly. A wire ran up and up to the middle of the tower. Obot's eyes saw clearly that wires had been attached to the entire metal frame, connected to firing mechanisms for smaller charges meant to set off the larger payload, the bomb clamped to the girders. If Obot were to let go of his right hand, the first charge would detonate, and in a matter of seconds the entire tower would topple, possibly crushing the buildings beneath. If the radio tower fell, the mission to the moon would fail. If Alea couldn't steal the Lucia Faruil, he was willing to sacrifice himself to prevent anyone from saving the cosmoship. Henry wondered what kind of debt or pressure had driven Alea to such madness. He never took the time to get to know Alea, he realized, and now his neglect could cost them everything. Henry clamped Obot's hand to the frame so it wouldn't release and detonate the charge. Likewise, he locked the robot in place on the girders so that it wouldn't move, even when Henry presenced out. Then, he decebralized from Obot's brain and woke up back in the Navabot sphere. Damn! He ripped the helmet off his head and dropped out of his harness. Two Cosmo Jockeys ran to his side, but he pushed them away. Henry, you were right! The backup generator destroyed beyond repair, said Grigor, re-entering the chamber. Despite everything, Grigor still looked impeccable, not a wrinkle in his suit or dust on his spectator shoes. But his face fell upon seeing Henry. What happened? I found them. They're in the radio tower. Unfortunately, they rigged the tower to blow. We can't risk climbing the damn thing. We'll find another way, Henry, Grigor sighed. Even if it means I have to grow wings and fly up there. Henry grinned. Smart man. What? We need a hot air balloon. If we can't scale that tower, we can certainly float up to that bastard's nest and pluck them out of there. Grigora went from enthusiasm to panic between blinks. Where am I supposed to find a hot air balloon? Steal a dirigible from the city if you have to. Henry switched on the intercom. Overseas. What do we have left on the clock? One hour and twenty-two minutes, came Marcello's reply. Dr. Odoblija said to tell you, mirror, mirror on the wall, who are you once and for all? What does that mean? Silence. Everyone looked expectantly at Henry. Henry sighed. Odoblija, you bastard! Couldn't you be more cryptic? No time to ask for clarification. He donned the helmet, offering his neck for the next injection. Strap me in again, boys. I'm going back to Lucia Ferrule. As he drifted into his trance, Henry thought he heard Anna's voice protesting over the intercom. Heart attack, seizure, phantom trauma. She was right. Any of those might kill him. But the world needed Grigor's dream of space and of peace. He presenced forth, ready to retake his ship. Back inside Bot 2, Henry floated through the cargo hold slowly. The ship was airless and would carry no sound, but vibration remained a cue that might alert his foe. He still had the element of surprise, and he might as well use it. If only he could find something, anything, that could help him. No ideas yet, but if he kept searching, something might inspire him. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who are you once and for all? What did Odobleja mean by that? Was it something to do with the psycho-cybernetic brains that might give him an advantage? Henry stopped and stared at Batu's faint reflection in the chrome pane of the lunar cart. He switched on the forehead lamp, and the metal brightened. He could see Batu's reflection in the mirror-like surface in great detail. He knew what Odoblegeau wanted to tell him. Scientific knowledge wasn't adequate enough to build an autonomous intelligence inside a robot. But Odoblegeau invented the next best thing. Bots that could be piloted through a displaced awareness via radio signals. Anna Oslan's serum had made the cerebralization process, or presencing, possible. The bots' brains worked more or less the same as human brains, in that a robotic brain could control the robot only because there was a personal image that matched its many parts. The moment that self-image changes, the brain starts transmitting distorted and misfired signals. Henry had an idea of what Adoblija wanted him to do. But would it work? Henry unlocked the hatch that led out of the storage hold and into the navigation room. He reviewed the details he needed to incapacitate t the distance to the pots from the hatch, where the reset switch was on the base of T Bot's head. The reset only worked in the bot's primary brain, not the maintenance subbrain. However, it would at least take the subbrain offline for ten seconds, enough for Henry to accomplish his true goal wake up T Bot's main and true identity. The moment he sprung the hatch, Henry had only two seconds before any visual cues would be sent back to Earth, and two seconds for the saboteur to do something about it through T-Bot. Four seconds to get to the bot and flip its reset switch. He could do it in two, given how small the navigation room was. No way in hell could he miss this chance. Bot 2 opened the hatch and burst through the opening, magnetizing his feet and locking onto the metal floor. One second. He made the two steps to the pods in another second and a half, and stretched out his hand to flip the switch. Nothing happened. Three seconds had passed, and T-Bot was still running its activities without reacting to Bot 2's ruckus. But at the same time, the reset switch wasn't... there anymore? It was, but it was covered up with tape. Eliot had actually thought about the reset switch... And had taken measures to make it inaccessible. Next second, Tebot turned in Batu's direction. Henry was out of time. Batu reached in front of Tibot, who tried to stop him, but four seconds too late. Henry reached above the porthole and grabbed the photo of Tiberiu, Marcella, and their daughter. TB's personal touch. His real presence aboard the Lucia Ferrule. Henry taped it on the flight board in front of t He was just in time. t smashed into Bot 2 and threw him through the hatch back into the cargo hold. Pain flared in Henry's chest. Was this the phantom pain the doctor warned him about? Before Henry could reorient Bot 2, the hatch closed and locked from the navigation side. Elea had initiated the emergency protocol for dumping the cargo hold. Henry's photo identity ploy had failed. Damn. The cargo container shook violently as the first set of clamps released. Henry looked wildly around for an escape. The second set of clamps disengaged and the module separated from the ship. No, no, no! Henry raced to open the hatch to the outside and clambered out. He hooked the carabiner of his safety line into one of the handles embedded in the main hull just before the hold was jettisoned away from the Lucia Ferule. His bot now floated a few meters behind the Lucia Ferule, towed at the end of its safety line. Henry could cry right now. This had been TB's idea for the bot's safety while working outside the ship if the need arose. Sweet, thoughtful TB. Henry's thoughts faltered. All is not lost. The view was incredible. On one side of him was the Earth, perfect and glowing like nobody could ever have guessed. Not the ancient Greeks, not Galileo, not even the modern astronomers. It was simply breathtaking. Then there was the graceful shape of the cosmoship Lucia Ferul, a sleek silver angel seemingly motionless in its flight away from the dark and beautiful moon. Henry knew he was almost out of time. This was a fight for young people like TB, not dinosaurs like him. He made Bot 2 pull itself back to the Lucia Ferule, engage its electromagnetic feet, and cling to the hull. He mauled his options. The pilot pod might be his last chance. Bot 2 clambered atop the ship, slowly, grasp after step after grab until it stopped next to the emergency control panel for the Grand Carpen Pile that powered the Lucia Ferule, the undying heart that could sustain the Cosmocraft to the end of time. Henry had helped Vasilisku Carpen mount this module in the ship. He hoped he remembered his way around it well enough to execute his plan. He unbolted the protective panel with a spanner extension hidden in Batu's wrist toolkit and took a look inside. It wasn't very complicated, yet extremely fragile if exposed. There was a two-second lag, Henry reminded himself, counting his steps again. He removed bot two secondary battery and disconnected the wires, and attached it to the pile's control panel, wiring the first cable to one of the connectors to the ship. Henry then wrested a red wire from the Cosmoship's carpent pile the one that he'd been warned to always keep completely isolated from the others. He pulled another wire free from his backup battery. Henry prayed that this would trigger an overcurrent that might supercharge the pods and take T-Bot offline. He brought the two bare ends into contact. Sparks flared in the darkness of space. Did it work? The only way to check was to get back inside. If T-Bot had been reset... It would take five minutes for it to gain full functionality. But if it hadn't, then it would be Henry versus Alea, Cosmonaut versus Saboteur, in a final showdown. Henry opened the external hatch and slid inside, closing the opening behind him. He waited a few seconds, then spun open the hatch to the navigation room, ready to fight. T-Bot was still in its pod. No noise, no movement, a trap? He floated quietly to the pods and grabbed Tibot by the arms, hoping to immobilize them. Tebot didn't react. It was dead. Henry sighed, magnetized 2's feet, and retaped the photo onto the window right in front of Tibot's eyes. He unbolted H Bot's dismembered hulk from its pod, tethered it out of the way, and inspected the flight board. T-Bot had been in the middle of introducing the last adjustment calculations received from Earth. Henry canceled the previous path. The clock had been set to count down the time until the fall-over-horizon event, when Romania would be on the other side of the globe, and the ship and its bots would be out of contact with the human pilots. Twelve minutes left. Henry reestablished radio contact with Overseas. Overseas, this is Coanda. Now back in command of the Cosmos ship, Lucia Farul. I sent the exact coordinates of my position. Please recalculate my flight path. I have 12 minutes to dial in the new calculations. He heard the cry of relief from Marcella. Then, as she spread the news, Henry could tell Marcella was crying. Henry fed the new calculations into the flight board as he received them. t arm shot up and struck Bot 2 in the head. Sending Henry reeling, the phantom pain was so intense that Henry was sure something had broken inside Botu's neck. But Tebot, instead of attacking again, hesitated and looked at the photo. Henry raised Botu's arm to parry. Overseas, send a reset signal to Tebot and switch it to its primary brain now. Tebot scored another agonizing strike against Henry. Then it was half standing. Magnetizing and trying to grab Bot 2's head, but it couldn't quite manage to synchronize the movement of its hands with Henry's dodge. The time lag saved Henry again. Henry shoved T Bot back into its pod, keeping its head towards the front window, eyes aligned with Tiberius' photo. Look at yourself! You are TB! TB is you! He sent through the channel, hoping the image of the real T Bot was still in there somewhere. Fighting Ilea's presence. T-Bot remained unmoving in the pod. Henry released his grip and checked the flight board. Five minutes left. He continued his litany while he dialed in the new course corrections. You're TB! TB is you! He felt something ram into him, forcing him from the flight board. Henry fought to breathe against the crescendo of pain in his chest. He had to stay conscious. Come on, T-Bot! Henry shouted through the channel. It's time we showed the world this beautiful dream. It's time we make this world a better one. T-Bot faltered. Its impulses likely at war. Elea in its subbrain versus the core persona in the primary. Henry fought the urge to weep. He'd failed them all. Again. So close, and he still couldn't make it to the finish line just like in Paris, when his jet plane had crashed and his investors had abandoned him. I'm sorry, TB. I'm destined to fail. I haven't been a very good mentor. t hands froze. Henry didn't lose a second. He pushed the inert T-Bot away, returned to his pod, and started punching buttons and spinning dials to execute the final course corrections. The last digit, the last click of the dial. Blackness cut his vision. That was it, the fall over the horizon. Exhaustion pulled him under, and he lost consciousness. Henry squinted from the sunlight filling the room. He kicked away his blanket. Why was he in his bedroom in the Brasov Orbit Launching Center? Wasn't he supposed to be on a mission? He jumped out of bed. Easy now, Henry. Tiberiu entered the room. TB Henry hugged his friend. "'You're fine?' "'I'm good. I was waiting for you to wake up.' "'How long have I been asleep?' "'Almost eighteen hours.' "'Oh my god, the Lucia Ferrule. rule? I lost it, didn't I?' "'Tiberio laughed and hugged him again. "'You saved it, old man. You saved it. Come on, get dressed and come down. We've got one last thing to do before you retire.' Eighteen hours?' But that means... murmured Henry with a shiver. Yes, we've reached the moon's orbit. We're there. Tiberius smiled. I've been waiting for you to do us the honor of landing the first bot on the moon. Everybody, from fawning politicians to anxious investors, gathered in front of the Navabot sphere. And for the first time... Grigor had allowed journalists with their cameras and super-iconoscopes within the facility. They were all eagerly awaiting Henry and Tiberiu to presents into their bots on the Lucia Ferul and land them on the moon. Did you get Aaliyah? Henry said under his breath to Grigor. Aaliyah and two English spies. We got everything under control and into the morning papers. Grigor whispered in his ear. He then spoke aloud for the journalists. Ladies and gentlemen... We're here today to witness the most extraordinary event yet in human history. The first landing on the moon. Do us all a favor, Mr. Koenda and Mr. Avachian. Land the damn thing on the moon and make history. He shook their hands. Henry nodded. It's time for us all to forget greed, to forge peace, to fly to the stars. Applause erupted as he and Tiberiu entered inside the sphere. The team strapped them into their harnesses and prepared their helmets and injections. Bulbs ignited like drumming strikes of lightning, leaving a fleeting flash blindness in Henry's eyes before a Cosmo Jockey lowered the connect helmet over his head. He felt a slight pain in his neck as a syringe injected the cerebralizing serum into his bloodstream. But he welcomed it. Henry awakened inside Bot 2, back inside the Lucia Ferruz navigation room, Tiberiu had reclaimed T-Bot, now freed from enemy control. The moon's surface was just beneath them, a stone's throw away. The End
2: And there you go. Big thank you to Tony Pye and Costi Gugu and amazing voice by Paul Cram. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis with looking back at genre history. Ames.
3: Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Lately, one of the things that's been on my mind is the subject of elections. I know that some of you know where I'm coming from. Some of the members of the Sofanot family have recently had elections in their home countries and are dealing with the aftermath of that. And I know others in the Sofanot family are, in fact, looking ahead. I wouldn't say looking forward to, <laughs> but looking ahead to elections in our countries. And, of course, we're all watching each other's elections, too, are we not? And that made me think about a work of science fiction, dystopian science fiction, appropriately enough, that was written as a future history, particularly to respond to one election, and to put a finer point on it, one candidate. And because the impetus for this story was so specific, one candidate in one election, the author thought, well, the shelf life of this story wasn't going to be terribly long, because once the election was over, well, the question was kind of moot. But in fact, it has become quite an influential book, and rightly so, that has long outlived the immediate circumstances that inspired it, and has gone on to inspire other works as well. So let's talk about this book, shall we? Let me start with the author. The author was Sinclair Lewis, who lived from 1885 to 1951. He was a U.S. citizen, and he wrote novels and short stories and plays, He was particularly known for writing critical works of social satire and social discussion that held up to the light what he perceived as American conformity, American materialism, American hypocrisy. In works like Babbitt in 1922, which was a satire of American commercial culture, And Aerosmith from 1925, about an idealistic doctor who comes up against, well, lots of forces that challenge his idealism. And Elmer Gantry, 1927, which depicted an evangelical minister as a very hypocritical figure. Now, in 1926, he won the Pulitzer Prize for the novel Aerosmith. And he became the first person who would not accept his Pulitzer. He declined it, and he wrote a letter to the Pulitzer Prize Committee and explained his reasons. He said, and I quote, "...all prizes, like all titles, are dangerous. The seekers for prizes tend to labor not for inherent excellence, but for alien rewards. They tend to write this, or timorously to avoid writing that, in order to tickle the prejudices of a haphazard committee. And the Pulitzer Prize for novels is particularly objectionable because the terms of it have been constantly and grievously misrepresented." Those terms are that the prize shall be given for the American novel published during the year which shall best represent the wholesome atmosphere of American life and the highest standard of American manners and manhood. This phrase, if it means anything, whatever, would appear to mean that the appraisal of the novel shall be made not according to their actual literary merit, but in obedience to whatever code of good form may chance to be popular at the moment." End quote. So, Burn from Sinclair Lewis. He did, however, go on in 1930 to become the first writer from the United States to receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. And that was awarded, quote, for his vigorous and graphic art of description and his ability to create, with wit and humor, new types of characters, end quote. I should probably mention here that he's often been noted for his strong characterizations of modern working women, which was something relatively new on the U.S. literary scene. Well, in 1935, Sinclair Lewis was very worried about a particular candidate, That was the year when Huey the Kingfisher Long got his bid for the White House in full swing. Now, Huey Long had served as the 40th governor of Louisiana, and at the time was serving as a U.S. senator. Today, Long is probably best remembered as the inspiration behind another work of fiction, that is Robert Penn Warren's 1946 novel, All the King's Men. Now, Long was a kind of, well, controversial figure who had his own sort of, how should I put it, cult of personality. He was a loose cannon of a populist who rose to political power, some said, by acting more like a demagogue than a representative of the people. In his book Southern Politics, V. O. Key notes that Long used, quote, patronage in all its forms, deprivation of perquisites, economic pressure, political coercion in one form or another, and now and then outright thuggery. Or, to put it another way, uh, many people saw Long as a kind of corrupt political boss. He did get things done, a lot of things done, a lot of things that the people of Louisiana wanted done, he got done. But he got them done in the same way, perhaps, as a mafia boss might get things done, right? So, you can see why someone like Sinclair Lewis, who was concerned about the state of the American political soul, was worried about a character like Huey Long. He distrusted what he viewed as Long's cult of personality. And he wanted to tell his fellow citizens that Long might be saying everything they wanted to hear, or, to use today's newspeak, he might be telling it like it is, but he could only keep his extravagant promises to the people by twisting the American system of government out of shape and consolidating greater power in his own office and person. Where would this stop? Dictatorship, Lewis believed. And so Lewis sat down and wrote a novel... 1935, called It Can't Happen Here, imagining what the day after tomorrow might look like if Huey Long were elected president. Lewis wrote his novel as fascism reared its head in Europe, and so he outfitted his Huey Long avatar, the charismatic President Berzelius Buzz Windrip, with all the outward trappings of that fascism. The United States transforms as President Windrip transforms the office. He ends up with a private militia and concentration camps and a chief of staff who sounds suspiciously like Nazi propaganda wizard Joseph Goebbels. But despite all of this, and this is, I think, quite interesting, President Windrip is not a Nazi. And this speaks to Lewis's big complaint and criticism of the American character. There's nothing there. Or to put it another way, the president doesn't believe in the wrong things. In this case, he doesn't believe in anything, which is rather terrifying because that makes him very, very hard to anticipate and thus hard to fight. You don't know which way he's going to go because the only thing he's really in it for is the power. Windrip is not an ideologue of any kind. He's cynical. He's opportunistic. He's part con man and part entertainer. He's a manipulator who plays on all of the social and economic and political fears of the people, and he also plays on their related desire for a strong leader to just take control and fix things from the top down. They don't like how things are, so somebody just needs to come in and make things right, however That person has to do it. And he plays on those fears and plays on those desires like a musical instrument. He appeals to the basest urges of the people, and that includes racism and that includes xenophobia, to convince them to give up their rights and responsibilities, and in turn give him unprecedented power, of course, because that's his ultimate endgame. In other words, Windrup scholars argue, represents a particularly U.S. form of authoritarianism. It's sort of an extreme but logical end product of what scholar Robert Higgs, uh, using a term that was coined actually by his former Ph.D. student Charlotte Dwight, has identified in the current U.S. system, in both parties, as participatory fascism. Pretty heavy stuff. Whether you agree with the interpretation or not, it's food for thought. Now, Lewis plays out this scenario. How would this presidency unfold in practice? And there are a series of not-so-unforeseeable disasters, including, by the way, a completely unjustified U.S. invasion of Mexico. And It Can't Happen Here leaves readers poised at the beginning of a new U.S. civil war. But throughout the story, which is told from the point of view of a member of the press who watches all of this and becomes part of the resistance, if you will, there is this constant refrain that echoes a clear message, and that is, it's really not too late to avoid this terrible future. And here, I think, is another great example of the hopefulness of the dystopian genre that is you don't yell fire when everybody's already burned to a crisp and dead as a doornail right you yell fire when there's still a time to get out right the point of a warning is this is not inevitable this is something that can be avoided and it can't happen here was Sinclair Lewis's cry to say hey wake up don't elect this man or bad things will happen but it's not too late Now, it just so happened that the question of the election became a moot point even faster than Lewis expected it would because a physician fatally shot and killed Huey Long at the Louisiana state capitol a year before the election happened. So, in fact, the election didn't play out with Long as a candidate. Um, Long was assassinated, and so the point was moot. But the long-term relevance of It Can't Happen Here is worth discussing. Over the last 80 years, Lewis's vision has inspired others who share his concerns about the political world and how the American system could be subverted if a particular candidate were to hijack the system, in a sense. The original 1983 television series V which you may recall launched a 1984 sequel and then two television series, one of which ran from 1984 to 1985, and the other 2009 to 2011. That entire V story was directly inspired by It Can't Happen Here. In fact, some of the Nazi imagery you see, some of the same Nazi imagery you see in in the novel— And the major idea that there's going to be someone, in the case of V, it's aliens, who comes out of apparently nowhere, promising everything you could possibly want, just give them power, well, that fits very well with Lewis's concerns about Huey Long. And, of course, V has gone on to inspire other texts as well. Also, in the television series Person of Interest, There was an episode that gave the novel its own cameo appearance to underscore the political weariness, even paranoia, of one of its characters. Sinclair Lewis, along with John Moffat, adapted the novel for The Stage in 1936, the year after it was published, and that play continues to be produced today. In fact, it's sort of enjoying a kind of renaissance. In addition, uh, in September 2016, the Berkeley Rep plans to perform a new adaptation by the Berkeley Rep's artistic director and screenwriter. And in the theater's press release, it says, Sinclair Lewis's astoundingly prescient novel gets a fresh update in this world premiere adaptation that examines what brings a citizenry to the point of sacrificing its freedom and how a courageous few can prevail To overcome the fall. This story is as relevant today as it was in 1935." So, there you have it. One author's concern over a particular candidate in a particular election leads him to write a futuristic, dystopian novel, day after tomorrow kind of thing, how the world goes wrong. It can't happen here, and in fact it does in the novel, And thus, a work that appeared to have a rather short shelf life, in fact, has gone on to have quite a long life, and quite an influential one as well, being revisited time and again, and also, of course, reinterpreted, so that, for example, um, the aliens of V are, in fact, metaphors for those who might seduce us into giving up our rights and responsibilities, and giving them power. By the way, you can find the entire text of It Can't Happen Here online for free at Project Gutenberg Australia. And before I sign off, I would like to issue an invitation to everyone to join me, particularly in the month of October online. This will be my 11th year of having a daily countdown to Halloween, and I have some very special plans for this year's countdown, and I hope you'll join me. You can find that through my blog, which you can access through my website, amyhsturgis.com. That will also be on my Twitter feed, and I am D-R-A-H sturgis on Twitter, and you can also find me on Goodreads, and if you friend or follow me on Goodreads, uh, you'll also have access to my blog there and it will be carrying the countdown as well there. So lots of genre goodness and I hope you will join me for the 31 days of October, and I hope that you've enjoyed this look at an election influenced, election inspired work of Dystopian SF, and I look forward to joining you again very soon with a completely different topic as we look back on genre history together. Thank you.
2: Big thank you, Amy. You are a star. Thank you so much. This was all waiting for us. They're all ready to go. Excellent. Here we am. So... That is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's put to bed. Thank you so much, everyone, that's taken part part as well. Costi Gugu, Tony Pye, Paul Cram, and our oh, very own Amy hit Sturgis. Big thank you to Jeremy. I think he's still somewhere in deepest, darkest Poland, I think, at the minute there. So. Tune in next week, and I'll try and find out where he's actually at. Until then, I would just like to say, good night from me. Ooh.
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Social Sofa. Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shovel set for watch. people will be open three, two, one.
1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.